Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening in today to Palm Peeps. We're super excited to be back with another episode. As always, we have a range of episodes. We do some case presentations, some fellows reports. And today we have one of our roundtables diving into sepsis to talk about uh, topics in the field and advances that are going on. And we're joined by some great experts. Christina, I'm really excited for the episode today. Perf, me too. I'm so excited. One, it's fellowship match day today. That's amazing. And second is my, one of my second favorite things is Plum Peeps, getting to blend the two together and really excited about our guest today and talking about sepsis, which we haven't done. Now, I like to note that I know your priorities is fellowship number one and Palm Peeps number two, which it sounds appropriate. <laughs> yeah. Congrats on, on a match day and being all done. And to Hallie and Derek too, because I'm sure their program's got amazing fellows. We're going to be talking about sepsis today. When we had first started this, we talked about doing an episode just to walk through the guidelines. And certainly the surviving sepsis guidelines should be core reading for any pulmonary critical care doctor or trainee. At the same time, just talking through them ended up sounding like it might not be all that much fun. It could be very fun, but we were going to dive into some maybe more novel topics. We'll certainly touch on the guidelines. We're really honored to have two experts in the field. And without further ado, we'll meet them now. First, we have Dr. Derek Angus. Uh, Dr. Angus is a professor at the University of Pittsburgh, where he holds the Mitchell P. Fink Endowed Chair in Critical Care Medicine and is the chair of the Department of Critical Care Medicine. He's a world-renowned researcher in a range of critical care topics, but including sepsis. He has literally hundreds of publications and has led numerous NIH-funded studies. I could go on forever with his list of achievements and accolades, but they're littered with lifetime achievement awards, research awards uh, from all the major professional societies. It's really a privilege to have you on Palm Peeps today, Derek. It's lovely to be here. Thanks, Jim. Yeah, welcome, Derek. And next, we're equally excited to welcome Dr. Hallie Prescott to the show. Hallie is an associate professor in the pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan. She's a co-chair of the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines, and she's also an internationally recognized expert due to her research in improving sepsis outcomes. She's been recognized by both medical journals as well as professional societies for her outstanding contributions to the field. And really an exciting honor to have you on the show today, Hallie. Welcome to Palm Peeps. Great. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Before we dive in, just our standard disclaimer, this podcast is not meant for medical advice. Our opinions are our own and do not reflect our employers. And the cases that are referenced uh, in the episode are going to be few for this episode. But if we talk about any, they're HIPAA compliant and some details may have been changed to protect the identity of our patients. Thanks, Firth. And I know today we're really looking forward to talking about some interesting topics on the forefront of sepsis care. And Firth, I know those listening today know that you and I are both very interested in medical education and in training residents and fellows to be successful pulmonary and critical care doctors. You know, and certainly everyone in the field will get some training on caring for patients with sepsis at some time. And I'm sure we have our own chalk talks, you know, rounds discussions that we'll do at the bedside, um, as well as bedside teaching points that we make. But I'm very curious um, how you approach teaching about sepsis to the trainees that you work with in the ICU. And Hallie, I'm um, asked this question to you first, um, and it's really two parts. One, do you have an approach you like to take when teaching about sepsis? And two, more specifically for the fellows, do you focus on guidelines? Do you bring in landmark articles, talk about physiology, or really something different at all? Yeah, thanks. Great question. I think my approach to teaching has evolved over the past 10 years or so that I've been in attending. I used to do a ton of putting all these teaching pearls while we were, you know, doing our rounds. And then 
I don't know, over time, I started to worry about my patients who are at the end of the three-hour rounds and that we were all exhausted and actually how important it is to get the work of rounds done. And so I have evolved away from that. So I, I generally approach it of rounds are to do work rounds. And we really want to focus on we're all on the same page in terms of what the plan is for the patient and what are the things that we need to do to ensure that plan is carried out. And then we break from rounds. I give people some time to do those things, call in those critical consults, get the orders in, go check on a patient or things like this. And then I regroup and bring the team back together for a separate teaching rounds. And this, I like to do conversation, chalk talks, have it be really interactive and have people ask questions, not anything formal like a PowerPoint talk or anything like that. And I have just a variety of topics that I'll try to always get through during um, an ICU rotation. And absolutely sepsis is one of those and try to time that at a time when we have a new patient that we are managing for sepsis. I like to go through definitions, basic management, things that are in the guidelines. And then for the fellows, I do absolutely want to bring in what are those seminal articles that have really shaped the guidelines that we have And then what are the areas where actually we don't really have a lot of data and we do what we do because that's what we've done. But in fact, we really need more data to better guide what we're doing. So in a nutshell, that's my approach to teaching on rounds or after rounds. Yeah, I love that approach. I feel like the end of rounds patients not only get the short string because you've been rounding for a few hours, but also no one's eating lunch. (laughs) Everyone's a little bit tired. It's like, all right, let's move on to the next one. Uh, That's really helpful. So you are both authors on the Surviving Sepsis Campaign International Guidelines, which, as we talked about, is probably should be universal reading for any pulmonary critical care fellow, and at least the bullet points um, for medical trainees. I know these guidelines are meant to serve as a clinical guide, and I also think that they help hospitals and health institutions understand which practices to focus on. Dirk, I wanted to ask you about them in the context of education. Do you think that trainees, when they're learning about sepsis, should be turning to these guidelines first as a launching off point? Or is it really more for them to focus again on those articles or think about the physiology and bedside care of the patients first? I don't know that there's a specific order. I do think that when you think about how to treat a patient with sepsis, I think that the it's a big document, but it's a pretty well written document. And it's blocked out in chapters, if you like. So you can go in and read about uh, under these different domains, ventilator management, etc. And one of the things that's quite nice about the guidelines is that the rationale is often quite nicely written. So there's a, it's, here's what we think about the literature and here's why we found the way the literature was useful to guide on this question, etc. And so... I think it's actually quite a nice document when you're thinking about treatment options. Having said that, I don't think sepsis begins and ends with treatment. I think that there is reading to be done about what the hell is sepsis and what's multisystem organ failure and why do we have the current working definition and uh, what and what's the epidemiology of sepsis? And and that's not really covered in the surviving sepsis paper. And I don't think you would really have an adequate knowledge of sepsis if you were just focusing on, oh, the, someone's told me the patient has sepsis. Now let me go look up how to treat them. I, I think it's useful to think more broadly about th- these larger issues of, of how sepsis sits within humans over the trajectories of their life, who's at most risk for it. And the reading in that 
can be in a variety of places. Any big review papers on sepsis will tend to cover all of these domains, epidemiology and pathophysiology and long-term outcomes in addition to treatment. Even book chapters, if anyone ever actually... I don't know if you know reads Harrison's or Cecil anymore, but they still have sepsis chapters in them. And and then there's lots of classic landmark articles on the epidemiology of sepsis. There are nature review papers on the pathophysiology and so on. And so that would I, I know no one really wants to read, and certainly I did as little reading as I could. <laughs> medical school and residency, but you could probably take the surviving sepsis paper and just a few other select papers, contemporary assessments of the epidemiology, pathophysiology, that would get you a long way. Oh, that's really a helpful perspective. Yeah, I don't know how many people are reading Harrison's. I certainly see it on lots of shelves, but <laughs> how many of them are actually pulling it down? I'm not sure. No, and I just really like reading the guidelines like that. Is you have this panel of experts that are telling you what the data, what they think the data so far means and what, what you should do going forward. So it is, I do agree, it's really well written, helpful diving into it. Uh, this is a question for both of you. I'm just curious if in your experience working with trainees and other attendings taking care of patients with sepsis, if there's a group of skill sets or an area where you think that there's a lot of learning to be done, an area where people are often not quite up to par, either with the guidelines or their bedside clinical skills and something that people could focus on their own or that we should focus on and, as educators. I'll start if you want. I'm <laughs> looking at Hadley. He's pausing. So I'm going to start by saying I don't think there's any particular technical skills. I think there's a couple of things that for me that go on that get in the way of good sepsis care. One is um, you miss it. Uh, you you yeah. don't think about it in the first place, and so time is lost. And then the other thing is sometimes, especially if you wanted to never miss it, and therefore you're putting everyone on everything, you're treating every lactate, you're measuring every lactate, you're putting on a ton of antibiotics, then you get a complete mess with too much polypharmacy. And I think the answer to both of these issues is... I find myself trying to ask trainees, what's their mental model about what they actually think is going on? Sepsis is a great masquerader. It looks like other things. You it, Sometimes, like a, an old, a colleague of mine used to say, hypotension is not a diagnosis in this. As we break everything down into these sort of search for signs, et cetera, people end up treating the abnormalities, but they don't have a good mental model of what's the underlying problem. Why would this person still have an elevated lactate a day and a half later after we've been giving all of these fluids? Is there something else we're missing? And I constantly am wanting people to articulate what's their logic base for what they think is actually driving the constellation of features. And if they're constantly asking themselves that, then I think it's easier to then recognize this patient doesn't look right. It doesn't make sense that the following thing is happening. And I think that then helps with earlier recognition. And I think it then also helps making you brave enough to stop antibiotics. At this point, it's not it's not conceived. I just can't believe that sepsis is driving this anymore. I'm going to get these antibiotics off and so forth. So I'm sorry, I'm going on so long, but basically 
really try to hold in your head a strong mental model for what you actually think the underlying diagnoses are and don't just have a list of abnormalities that you're treating. Yeah, I totally agree. I feel like I'm always a stickler for soap notes on rounds. <laughs> and oftentimes I find that people skip over that assessment right into these things like IDYs, we have them on antibiotics. And I'm like, whoa, back up. <laughs> and yeah, I think the more we can articulate what our assessment of this patient is and the more precise we can be about that, the better. And then being able to articulate the rationale for why we've selected the treatments we have, recognizing that every day, even if we're not changing everything, that's a conscious decision. We've decided to continue everything we were doing yesterday. We're not adding anything. We're not stopping anything. That is a decision we've made. And I think Anytime we have consultants, which of course is all the time in the ICU, right? We're asking for help from cardiology or infectious disease. I always really stress upon my team the importance of understanding not just what is this consulting team recommending we do, but why are they recommending that? Because ultimately we're the people in charge of deciding whether to enact that recommendation. And we have all these other things we're considering and we want we need to be able to assess, oh, that, that makes sense. Or if we hear this rationale, and actually it only really makes sense from the perspective of one organ system, we might say, we get what you're saying, but actually we're probably not going to do that. So if I only know the recommendation, but not the rationale for the recommendation from this consulting team, it's really hard to know for certain whether that's the right thing to do for the patient. So I think I stress a lot of these kind of similar things in terms of being really careful and thinking about and articulating the medical decision making. And like when I go into rounds, I generally have a plan of what I think we should do for the patient, but I'm way more interested in hearing what is the, what is the team's plan. And there's all sorts, oftentimes when I, they articulate this great plan and I say, oh, that's a good idea. We'll do that. And, and sometimes on rounds, people will show up and say, oh, here's all the objective data. What do you want us to do? And I say, I'd like you to tell me your assessment and tell me your plan. And I think that's, it's, it's harder to do that. Sometimes you want to say, oh yeah, great, we'll do this. But I always try to have the team bring that plan as much as possible. Yeah, that, that's so great. I think it's so important, Hallie, as you were mentioning, it, it is, it's an assessment and plan part. And, and Derek, I was, as you said earlier about books, I was looking at my bookshelf and I'm like, how many books do I have? And when was the last time I read them? So I think also a, a mental exercise for us to do as we're listening through this. I know we're not going to walk through the surviving sepsis guidelines, you know, here today, but we will make sure we post the link online for our listeners. And as Derek alluded to, it's um, a great content that is easily digestible. Um, and you can go to specific areas depending on what you're looking for. And hopefully many of you, those many of you listening today will be familiar with the recommendations and especially the best practice and strong recommendations, such as initiating resuscitation immediately, rapid assessment and treatment of potential infections always narrowing when appropriate, and using the QSOFA for rapid triage. And Hallie, I'm hoping you can comment globally about how, how are we translating these best practice guidelines into patient care at the bedside? That's a, a very good question. I think that the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guideline, as you mentioned, provides these strong recommendations. I think there's also a number of places, of course, where we provide weak recommendations that sort of recognize that there's going to be contextual factors for the patient and, and, and the, the sort of setting that you need to figure it out. So it's hard for us to provide super concrete instructions for every single patient you may have in front of you. And that may leave some, I don't know, room for interpretation. It, in Michigan, we have a statewide sepsis collaborative. And so we collect data on, on all of our hospitals. And I think that for us, 
right now in Michigan, fluid resuscitation is our biggest area for improvement. We see timed antibiotics is pretty good. We see that timed antibiotics triaging sicker patients with show up in shock, getting antibiotics faster. But there's at least in Michigan, and I suspect other places too, we've had this slow evolution from getting so much fluid when I was a resident to being like more restrictive and more restrictive. And I worry that we're, uh, I don't know, our patients are starving. And <laughs> that's a great point. I feel like one of the questions I always ask if someone's presenting on rounds and like that the presser requirement hasn't gone down. And I'm like, do you, do you actually think they have enough fluids? And then we talk about it for a minute and I'm like, just give more fluids. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you bring up a good point, Hallie, you know, and maybe potentially barriers to providing some of these best practice guidelines. And wondering if you have any thoughts as a follow up question on any barriers yeah. that you think may exist at the individual as well as institutional levels. Yes. So when we try to dig into this fluid issue more, I think that generally there is this fear of causing harm that is driving people's decision, right? They have a patient who has kidney failure or has reduced ejection fraction, and they worry that if I give fluid, this patient is at risk of harm from those fluids, and therefore they may hold back. And so I think the teaching we always try to give is, what do you think is the driving problem in this patient? Septic shock. What is the management of septic shock? fluids, at least as an initial management, right? And so certainly all of those things that cause worry are reasons to worry. And that's a reason to watch your patient more closely, but not a reason to withhold treatment from them altogether. And so that's the the sort of teaching that that I try to do is, yeah, recognizing why are we not doing this? And, And fear of causing harms, at least for us, seems to be the biggest worry right now. Oh, I feel like that fear of causing harm is so real. And the pendulum that you described swinging between a high amount of fluids, I, aside from even the initial resuscitation, I feel like just even in my short time in critical care, a bolus has gone from a liter to half a liter to now 250 cc's. And then I think the other day someone was like, let's just give them 125 cc's and see what happens. And I was like, if it's a very directed test, but uh, people are very nervous about it going the wrong direction. So this kind of dovetails nicely into a question I wanted to ask you, Derek. Some of this, when we talk about fluids, we can give sort of these protocolized answers that say we're going to give 30 cc's per kg for resuscitation. But there's also a big move in ICU medicine towards phenotyping, towards precision care, to doing more individualized patient care. And we're going to talk about future directions in sepsis and phenotyping a little bit more later in the show. But I'm just curious how you see this relationship between standardized, protocolized care for sepsis patients versus this push towards precision medicine and being more individually patient-focused when you have a new patient who comes into sepsis. Right. So let me start by saying I think this is a totally false choice. And I think it's based in an old and false adage about guidelines in general, where people would say things like, guidelines are cookbook, and it's totally simplistic, and there's only one recipe, and everyone has to be treated the same way. And I would actually say that standardizing care through complex protocols is probably the only way that you will be able to do reproducible individualized care, which I don't think we're at yet. But when we are at it, I think it'll be the only way to pull it off in a transparent and reproducible way. So let's imagine there's only three things you have to do to a critically ill patient. Let's imagine there's all you have to think about is, say, the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, and the neurosystem. And for each of the three, 
there's only two choices. You're either fluid heavy or fluid light and so on. So there's only three things. That's already eight. That's a matrix of two times two times. That's eight things. Now let's imagine there's two kinds of sepsis. That's a matrix of 16. That's already more ways of treating the patient than we have fingers on our hands. Now, either you don't use a standardized, protocolized way, in which case, who's getting the memo on which of the 16 combat? Like, how do you get the whole team, all the nurses, the respiratory therapists, the docs changing shift? How can everyone be following the plan if it's a complex, individualized plan and we've chosen plan 11, not plan 6? Or... How are you going to do that without having a standardized, protocolized way? So I really, I'm being slightly absurd by example, but I'm just trying to point out that if you envision that we will start to have multiple recipes, complex combinations that are tailored for the particular choice of patient, either you've got it all sewn up in your head like some fantastic artist, but no one in the rest of the team knows what it is, or it has to all be laid out explicitly in some protocolized manner so that everyone can be on the same page about which plan we're following. So it's a false choice. If we want to have individualized care, we'll actually have to take a transparent, standardized, protocolized approach. That's awesome. That's I, nothing I like more than blowing up a paradigm. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Um, and I know much of what we focus on and learn about um, is the initial recognition of sepsis in the hospital and really about the immediate resuscitation and care that should be implemented. And we people set timers sometimes, the, fir the first hour, the first three hours. And I know that both of you and many in the sepsis community have been thinking about care beyond that traditional initial period. And some of this has been focused in on preventing decompensation as well as a principle of time to treatment. And Hallie, I'm wondering if you can share um, any next steps you think that may be coming in providing early sepsis care and maybe even before a patient arrives to the hospital? Oh, yeah. The pre-hospital space. Yes. Yeah, Derek and I are both part of International Sepsis Forum, and there's, we're actually having a colloquium later this year to try to do some more thinking about this pre-hospital space, because I think you're exactly right. We Everything really, time zero, starts at this arrival to the emergency department or arrival to the hospital but there's all of these kind of earlier points when the patient's at home and starts to develop symptoms. And unlike a patient who's having stroke symptoms or heart attack symptoms that they recognize and come immediately to care, you always hear the story of, oh, gosh, I felt terrible. I thought I just better go to bed and get some sleep, right? That's always the story of the patient that shows up really late. So we have work to do in terms of educating patients, engaging community partners to raise awareness of when should someone seek care. I think likewise, diagnostics, getting out into nursing homes, all of these different things. I think it's like a wide open world and so much work to do to try to get people to the right care at the right time so that we can do the best job managing. I'm excited to hear what you guys end up talking about at that uh, colloquium. Uh, Derek, any things in the sepsis prevention or early intervention that you're particularly excited about hearing about there? Yeah, so I think this is a huge topic. I think you frame this as we focus on that sort of initial 24 hours in the hospital. I think of that as the middle of sepsis. And I think of that as a pretty, it's an important area, but it no longer really feels like a frontier. The frontiers are about 
recovery once you've actually avoided the person dying immediately of septic shock. And then the one we're talking about right now, which is how do you avoid them never getting as sick in the first place? And in my mind, I split it into three periods. One is the long-term actions that you can do to not even get sepsis in the first place. And that involves thinking at the community level about all sorts of social determinants of health that play in to sepsis. And some of these things would not only help sepsis, but they would help other parts of long-term health too. And if you want to think of actually something very concrete in that space, boost vaccination rates. There's a lot of sepsis that comes downstream from flu. And flu rates, it's a pretty good vaccine that we roll out every year. And some people take it, but not everyone. And in particular, highly vulnerable populations, minoritized populations sometimes have fantastically low rates, 45% or lower. Um, that's, that's dreadful. And of course, the reason for that is multifactorial. Sometimes there's no access. Sometimes there's lack of trust in the community. There's misinformation. And I think those of us who care about sepsis should be part of this world. We should be part of trying to help boost vaccination rates because wouldn't you rather that the patient never got sepsis in the first place? That's one example, and that's epoch one. The second epoch that Halle alluded to is you're maybe starting to get infected. You've got community-acquired infection, but it's not yet community-acquired sepsis. And there are definitely high-risk populations that you would like to intervene in there, such as nursing home populations. And so it would be exciting to see research using things like wearables and earlier interventions to try to do smarter early management in those populations so that they never get hypotensive and they never get organ dysfunction. And then the third epoch, which is also interesting to think about, is essentially the paramedic space. That, that little period from the moment that now the person does look sick, but they are not yet in an emergency department. And that's, the patient may already be in, might be in the nursing home with hypertension. So that clock is ticking for things like early antibiotics. And in that period there, even the two or three hours that could be gained by getting the antibiotics started in the ambulance rather mm -hmm. than could end up being very important. The epoch, it's not all just pre-hospital. There are different epochs in this pre-hospital space. And the challenges and the interventions, in my mind, are, are different in each of the spaces. But it's a huge frontier for the whole field. Yeah. Yeah. I love the thought of the patient who's also starting to get sick. And those patients, I feel like, present to different places now than maybe they used to. The amount of people who I hear go to an urgent care first and then get sent home, or they're at a nursing home, but there's a different type of staffing. And you would, and it or it meshes really well with what you said earlier, having this paradigm to actually recognize early sepsis is even harder to recognize than you know, sepsis that we're all used to in the ED who's hypotensive and febrile to 103. So yeah, thinking about those spaces is going to be a fascinating next step. Yeah, for sure. And I love that involving the early responders, the paramedics, and how that space can you know, also be studied and seeing if things can be implemented there. And I think outside of prevention and early treatment, we know there's been increasing focus in the critical care community, uh, specifically on recovery after acute illness. Firf and I have done an episode on PICS, and we've also talked about this in the context of recovery from ARDS. Uh, but Hallie, I'm wondering if there's any specific efforts in the sepsis community about interventions for recovering from sepsis care. Yeah, it's a great question. I mentioned that we have this 
sepsis initiative in Michigan. So we've got 69 hospitals all working together. And one of the things that's different about this initiative is that it really is meant to be the whole episode of care. So I will say we start when they come to the hospital, but we try, we go all the way through hospitalization and then to this peri-discharge care. And looking at, are people getting this kind of nice handoff from the hospital to the outpatient community where we know it's like this hugely vulnerable time, this hospital discharge that patients go home and everything sounded great when they were leaving the hospital. They're so excited to go home. Three hours later, they're home and gosh, they're on this new medication. They can't exactly remember why. And they used to be on this other medicine, but that didn't seem to be continued. And they're not exactly sure why that is either. And then the discharge instruction is if you feel sick, call 911. Make sure to schedule follow-up with your primary care doctor, right? And so I think that we have just this opportunity for improvement for this discharge process. So some of the things that we are looking at specifically and tracking across our hospitals right now is, do they have follow-up scheduled prior to leaving the hospital, which is really low? Do they have a contact number that they can call that they can actually get in touch with someone who can answer their question about the inpatient hospital stay? And so what most hospitals who are trying to address this are doing is having sort of an on-call person. So it may not be exactly the doctor that took care of you, but it's someone in that group practice who is way better equipped at trying to get that question answered three hours after they leave the hospital compared to the primary care doctor who doesn't even really know about this hospitalization yet. And then the third thing is having a post-discharge telephone call with these patients within about three days of them going home. And so we think that this is doing these kind of things are going to be really helpful for patients with sepsis. Of course, they're also really helpful for patients without sepsis, with other types of acute illnesses. And most of these things, when they do get implemented, are the types of things that get implemented hospital-wide or health system-wide when you come up with a way that you're going to get these follow-ups scheduled, that you're going to be doing telephone follow-ups with maybe not everyone, but at least your higher risk discharges, um, and then having this opportunity to get back in touch with somebody to get these questions answered. So those are some of the things that, that we are working right now. This is part of a sort of a performance index of our kind of holistic sepsis care that we are tracking in our hospitals. Sounds amazing. Yeah. The meds thing is, I feel like every patient who leaves the ICU goes without their statin because they had a transaminitis and with a new antipsychotic. And I always just wonder how long that lasts for. It was interesting. We've done some like looking at this to see like for these discontinuations that probably they should have been back on it or these things like the patient was on an antipsychotic in the ICU, which probably they shouldn't have been in the first place, but they were. And then they're still on it 90 days later. A lot of that stuff happens like at ICU discharge, and it may be totally appropriate at ICU discharge, right? Like it may very well not be time to start that statin or to stop this other symptom-driven medication, but that information that this medication is temporarily on hold or temporarily started doesn't really get passed along. And so we see it's very common that whatever they're on at ICU discharge or like discharged ICU to the ward is still what they're on 90 days later. So that's another thing that we've actually focused on too in the collaborative. Just like the hospital discharges this high-risk period, the transition from ICU to the ward is a high-risk period. And so we collect information about what is getting handed off or what is getting documented about these things at the time of discharge. I think there's an ICU pause as an initiative that's like a handoff tool that tries to get at these kind of core things that need to get passed on from ICU to ward. Because I think we've all experienced in the current electronic health record era that the notes just get longer and longer and longer. So these people coming out of the ICU have these like epic notes and it can be really hard sometimes to drill down what are like the 
critical, most important things I need to know. And so this is just this like short little template of these few important things to hand off to try to get at some of these issues about trying to get people back on to the things they should be on once their critical illness continues to improve and back on those chronic medications. Is that a little EMR pun? Epic, epic notes that are just go over it. I, I, oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even notice it, but yes, of course. <laughs> I, I, I think one thing I might add about, uh, so it's really hard to do this handoff, as, as Holly was alluding to. And um, Holly's been talking about things they're trying to track in Michigan. There, of course, also have been randomized trials of people trying to do enhanced uh, recovery. And I would say thus far, it's mainly told us about things that have been hard to pull off or <laughs> things that haven't quite made it. There was one paper published in JAMA a few years ago from Germany where they really tried to hand off back into all the, the primary care clinics because ultimately, primary care clinics are the folks uh, that will be managing these patients. And one of the things that was really interesting was that even though sepsis is quite common, big, large teaching hospitals hand off their patients to so many different clinics that individual clinics are only seeing one or two cases. And so you just get this massive sort of dilution effect. And it, it would be more plausible that a big, busy clinic that was taking a large volume of cases could really set up a slightly better communication chain. But that's relatively hard to do. And so one of the things that our VA has been looking at here in Pittsburgh is is create... They're also very interested in having community-based care of the veterans. And so they've hired folks that specifically liaise with the clinics to try to say, by the way, so-and-so is coming back to your clinic. We don't want to get in your way. They're your patient, but here's the things to think of. And and trying to use good people skills to gently nudge that primary clinic towards helping handover. The alternative is you take the responsibility for doing all the follow-up yourself. But I think that's hard to pull off even in terms of the distance. But this is a way of essentially creating like a virtual care outreach that still engages the long-term primary care uh, providers. Yeah, I think so. Stephanie Taylor's impacts trial, I think, did have some success in doing some of those things. Yeah, because there's so she, this was like a multi-component type of an intervention where they had these. Are you talking about the one down in Atrium before she? Yeah, in Atrium Health. So yeah. this was the impacts trial, the sepsis transition recovery program. So they had these kind of nurse navigators, and they yep. started in the hospital following the patients. And they were kind of just watching along in the health record. And then they would only engage the team if they felt there was an opportunity for improvement, right? If all the care is happening, great, perfect. But if they say, oh, we're not sure why there's still this antibiotic, we think it could really be stopped at this point. This seemed to be the infection, right? They would send these personalized nudges. And people are much more responsive, of course, to humans reaching out rather than some best practice alert. So they did that in the inpatient. Then they did, I think, some anticipatory guidance. They gave this discharge playbook that, again, was trying to be more proactive about what you might expect, who to contact. And they did these kind of symptom follow-ups and tried to be this extra support to high-risk patients in this first, during the hospital in this first month after discharge. And they found reduced readmissions and mortality among the people who survived to discharge. Yeah, so I think, so that that was a great 
study, I think it's Stephanie and the rest of their team would say that they had to spend a huge amount of effort trying to tailor an intervention that was actually palatable inside the healthcare system. And that will definitely be the case with this. The, the, this is not take a drug. Uh, and then it, it, yeah. the, the amount of locally tailored embedding into the politics and the culture yeah. and convincing the existing leadership will be massive. And that that's yes and we found the same yeah so i totally agree right there's a lot of these kind of structural reasons why no individual clinician can just do better and do better at these <laughs> discharge management things because they're happening at system levels right there's rules about you're not allowed to schedule people for hospital fall till after their discharge because we don't want to be scheduled and then stay in the hospital and then waste this appointment so you're up against all these structural barriers so for this michigan initiative we've discovered that like each hospital each health system has these own structural reasons why certain things are harder than others. And so we have ended up setting it up as this kind of composite measure, at least as the starting point to say, we know that some of these things are relatively easier or harder in your particular health system. We want you to start doing some of these things and I guess start with the one that may be easiest to achieve. I think the other thing we're doing is actually try to do some coalition building. So we've met with, there's other collaboratives besides the sepsis collaborative. So there's one for acute care surgery. And they are very interested because they see some of the same things in terms of post-discharge morbidity. And so they're looking to maybe adopt some of the same measures. So then once, I don't know, once you, it increases the um, motivation, I think, for health systems to buy in as there's more of these collaboratives trying to focus on similar things that, again, I think are helpful across the board for sepsis and other patients. Yeah. It's, it, when you try to roll out a quality improvement initiative, it's hard enough to roll it out within one part of the healthcare chain. Right at the top of this podcast, I think, Christina, you were asking how about the success of the rollout of surviving sepsis. And it's one thing talking to intensivists about how to reorganize the ICU. It's another thing talking to, for example, a hospital about managing the care across the emergency department to the ICU. Who's in charge of which bit? How is the transfer, et cetera? Anything where you're having to tackle more than one part in the healthcare chain where the two parts themselves are organized differently and the way they do their handoff is tailored in a very local way. It just it's 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 no less important, but it, it's almost logarithmically more challenging. Yeah. yeah, the buy-in, getting buy-in for all the different components seems like this huge challenge that obviously is necessary. This Michigan collaborative sounds incredible. I hope that there are more broad national collaboratives that are mirroring the same type of work. I want to be sensitive to everyone's time. And so I wanted to move into our final segment. We wanted to talk a little bit about novel therapeutics in sepsis and, and maybe where we're going. Derek, we talked a little bit earlier about phenotyping in the ICU. Certainly your work on phenotypes in sepsis is one of these landmark studies about precision phenotyping in critical care. I have another broad question for you, which seems to be the theme of the day. And so if this is a, a question that needs to be a blown up paradigm as well, I love that. That's great. But I'm curious about your thoughts about the next major treatment innovation in sepsis that'll be coming. And if you think this will be some new therapeutic that we're going to stumble upon or that is in the pipeline now, or it's going to be something that involves the more optimized, precise, phenotypic driven use of current interventions or current complex care plans. So I'll answer this in, in two parts. So 
I think some of the most exciting things that go on in phenotyping may be not about creating sub-phenotypes, but just about better identifying who I would say are the classically critically ill. Our ICUs are filled with patients who come into the ICU for a whole lot bunch of reasons that have put them at a high risk of death. And a lot of the time, a bunch of the reason is that they have huge underlying comorbidity. And this latest critical illness is only a relatively small insult that just tipped them over the edge. When we do all of our animal models, we're taking young, healthy animals and we're giving them a huge dose of acute critical illness, like a big slug of endotoxin and generating a massive host response. And then when we do our randomized trials, we enroll some of those patients <laughs> and a whole bunch of other patients who have a tiny little pneumonia with a huge amount of underlying COPD or heart disease, et cetera. And then you have a drug that's just going to be tweaking that host response to the pneumonia and lo and behold, it doesn't fix the problem. And I still think, I would say we've been chasing this problem for decades. Every single time you design a sepsis trial, everyone says, how can we find the best possible population? And, and some of the work in the phenotyping, whether it's the Chris Seymour Seneca or, or Car Carolyn Calfrey's work on the sugar, I hate the term hypo-inflammatory versus hyper-inflammatory. She said the same thing when she came on the show. She said, I hate this term. I wish we hadn't called it that. So. <laughs> Let's not call it that. But the hyper-inflammatory group is what I would call the, that's the group that looks like the animal model. That's the group that looked like they got a huge bolus of endotoxin and they have, it's a four fire, what's that fire, you know, the analogy about the number of trucks that come to the fire. Four alarm right, fire. Four alarm fire. Four yeah. alarm fire. A four alarm fire. So I think, so, so it's the four alarm fire phenotype. That group, I really believe if we have smarter ways of finding those groups may well benefit from one of the existing therapies. And I don't, we have fantastic therapies now. Not, they weren't all developed in sepsis. Some of them are developed in other inflammatory diseases, et cetera. But there's a lot of ways to examine repurposed drugs, relook at existing drugs within subsets. I would think that's more likely for a breakthrough than a whole new pathway we've yet to discover, which, and indeed, even if we discovered a whole new pathway, it would fail. <laughs> unless we make progress in either candidate selection for the trial or candidate selection for smarter subgroup analysis within the trial. In other words, uh, a assessing for heterogeneity of treatment effect within the trial. I, I think one of the other sort of exciting things that's come out of the phenotyping work is this recognition that these phenotypes first described in ARDS can also be identified in sepsis and pneumonia and these other populations. And so the phenotype cuts across our traditional disease paradigm and suggests that if you can identify this phenotype, then maybe this therapy can be useful across all of these different things. So, right, it goes, instead of calling it lung cancer and kidney cancer or whatever, you're now like, okay, it's this particular you know, trait that cannot be treatable across the board. So I think that also holds promise if you can then find the therapy that then you can find a broader population that's potentially treatable by that therapy. 
Thanks so much, Hallie. And I think I feel like this is a preview to your surviving sepsis colloquium that y'all are going to be at. Thank you for allowing Dave and I to be part of this discussion. And I think we have time for one additional question. And extending on some of what we talked about thus far already, I know over the last few years, you've heard about so many innovative research techniques and specifically different trial designs. I know AI is really hot right now, machine learning, big data sets, to building consortiums for ongoing data collection, and to really optimizing RCTs. And with RCTs, we've talked about on some of our shows, pragmatic design trials, adaptive trial designs, and as we just talked about, using phenotypes for prognostic and predictive enrichment. And I guess I, I'll maybe cheating. I have a two-part question. But as you both look out to the sepsis landscape, I think the first question is, what type of study do you see holding the most promise for advancing sepsis care? And then the, the second and final question for today for both of you will be any specific work that you are working on yourselves that you may want to sh- share with our listeners today. And I'll go, Derek, I haven't asked you a question yet. So I will start with you and then Hallie, we can follow up. So what kind of trial design? Let me say this. Let, let me, as you as, brought up a question to end on, I yeah, bet. Um, <laughs> so, so I'm going to, I will start by saying, I cannot believe that we have a disease that gets 50 million people a year, kills about 10 million people a year. And if it were a cancer, it would be about the worst cancer on the planet. And if it had been us looking at cardiovascular disease in the 1960s or the 1970s, we would be appalled. And in both the cardiovascular world back in in the 70s and in the cancer world, you would say, that means you need to put everyone in a trial because you clearly don't have the answer. That's an intolerably high mortality rate. And given that, I cannot get my head around the fact that so few sepsis patients are in any trial. It's a tiny fraction. Typically, uh, a CRO looking at a big academic medical center is hoping that they might enroll one sepsis patient every two months. One sepsis patient every two months. So I would say the trial design that I want to see is the trial design that everyone is in. I think sepsis is an emergency. And the acute myocardial infarction 20-day mortality rate in the 1960s was 35%. And today it's what? Just a few percent? But it went from 35% to a few percent. So I want a trial design that's part of a general initiative to sequentially test as many interventions as we can and to try to have everyone in the trial until we can get the mortality rate from 35% to 5%. And I think the only trial design that is best possible for that is something like one of these, I'm totally biased, academically biased, but I definitely think the future, therefore, are these large-scale adaptive platform trials. They can have modules within them that are testing novel therapies. You can enrich part of the modules with biomarkers. You can have it be registration grade. But the underlying platform is a platform that's trying to make sure that every patient with sepsis could be in that platform so that we're always learning. So that would be my call. Hallie, anything uh, you wanted to add for that final question? I totally agree. I think that the more people we can get into trials, the better. It's the best thing we have to learn about how to treat our patients better. And I think I agree about the platforms and that's really important to test like novel therapies or therapies that have higher risk. I think 
for all the things that we're already doing all the time, I think these embedded trials and a learning health system framework, like this ACORN trial that just came out looking at ankylmycin versus cefepime that was done under a waiver of informed consent, those kind of things, I think for comparative effectiveness of the things that are already considered routine or standard practice, I think is also hugely important and is another way to get as many people as possible into trials and to learn the most we can from the care that we are already delivering somewhat yeah. at random. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ed and Todd, we just did an episode with them like five days ago talking about awesome. the trial. And yeah. I love that pragmatic the way they're already doing this. And they and Todd said it great. He's like, I don't know why I picked them on round, so we should have a reason and then we should figure it out, which is very cool. Thank you both so much for your time. Again, we want to be sensitive to everyone's time. We're just coming up on an hour. This was a great episode. I think I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners are going to really enjoy it. So thank you uh, for being here. Lots of fun. Thanks so much for inviting us. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah. And thank you all for listening. Make sure you tune in in two weeks for our next episode. This episode was written, edited, and produced by myself and Christina Montemayor. And the music is original music by Eric Rogers. And we'll see you next time.